0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the garage... You can't see a thing, except for the clear
1: blue sky. A few cotton wool clouds.
0: Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky.
1: and quite mad, don't they? How do you like that? The fault dear Buddhist, is
0: not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. My guest is Françoise Bourzat. She's a consciousness guide and psychotherapist who weaves together western and indigenous ways of healing, growth and expanded states of consciousness. And she's the author of this wonderful book, Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. She also trains therapists and teaches at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Françoise, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you for
1: having me, Tanya.
0: It's a pleasure. This is such a fascinating subject, and I love how you weave it all together, and I'm really curious how this journey began for you.
1: This journey began for me while I came to the United States in 1981. And I met some very interesting people who were working as counselors with the adjunct support of substances such as MDMA, mushrooms, LSD, and these people, this group of people were very much oriented in using these substances really for the purpose of consciousness, healing, expanded states, fulfilling one's potential, resolving old issues, and that was exactly what I needed at the time. I had been carrying in my memory and in my body and in my heart some very difficult places from my childhood as well as some intense episodes of my young adult life, and I needed to sort myself out. I was basically disoriented, disoriented and needed some support, and I was determined to do some counseling, some, uh, some therapy, to receive, my, to receive some support for my personal work. And when I met these people, it felt like a really good way to deepen this process. And it was done in such a serious and methodical way that I felt confident in the safety and the potential of my uh, healing. And it worked. It worked really well. I, you know, of course, I'm not saying I'm... I'm all done, and everything is erased forever. We're not talking that way, but it really helped me move forward. And I decided that that was really something I was deeply interested in. Of course, I was able to apprentice and be next to that teacher who was originally my my guide, and later on meet this other women in Mexico who furthered my understanding of those methods. But the beginning was my own my own seeking, my own healing,
0: personally. That sounds very familiar to me. My, my journey began the same way. I was very messed up and needed a lot of sorting mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about your first teachers and, mm-hmm. and how that began?
1: My first teacher was Pablo Sanchez. Pablo Sanchez was a man of Native American and Mexican descent. He was born and raised on the reservation at the Four Corners in the United States of Navajo and Pueblo origins. I think his mother was Pueblo Navajo and his father was Mexican. And he was a tribal man of sorts. He had been raised in this culture. He was a photographer. He was an educated man, which was very rare in those circumstances at that time. He was drafted in the army for the Second World War and was the man who was dispatched to document the opening of the concentration camps. And his reporting on those camps really shaped his life, what he wanted to do for the world, what his contribution would be, what his participation into society would be. So he went to school, he became a counselor, he later became a professor of Jungian psychology at San Jose State University. He developed one of the first programs for Chicano supported education. He was a very political man in his own way at the time, and he had met during his years as a, in his middle age, in his 50s, I guess, he had met this other doctor named Salvador Roquette who was a Mexican doctor during one of his travels to Mexico, and Salvador had been initiated in the work of sacred mushrooms in the mountains of Mexico and was breaching the psychotherapy process uh, of psychiatry with the ceremony of the mushrooms. And Salvador became really interested in this combination of processes and shared that with Pablo, who himself had some very deep experiences with the peyote traditions and rituals of his tribe. So this collaboration between the two of them led to a very interesting method that Pablo was using during the work he did with me and other people he worked with.
0: Talk a bit about that method. So that
1: method that Pablo originally guided me with was a method that was looking at the past and the original template of one's wounding and rather than really diving deeply into the psychology of it. He would name it, he would really once bring a feeling of compassion towards the young person who had survived this ordeal. And then he would really support the expression of the full potential of the person. And he was really, very much in the indigenous way, supporting health in the matter of restoring well-being, restoring health. So his method was very oriented into not just a positive outcome or angle, but really supporting the person's true identity and true passion and true potential. So his method was looking at what is blocking the person, what are the blocks inside, what are the fear inside that are preventing this potential from unfolding. And he would invite people to do rituals, to be very connected with the land. He was a tribal man and he was a man of indigenous roots who had a lot of resonance with the earth and the directions and the elements and the green of nature and the spirit of the forest. That was very much part of his vocabulary. And he would encourage people to interface deeply with nature. And, in adjunct to this ongoing support through consultation he would then invite people to experiences with substances to go deeper into the exploration of their psyche so we would have weekly consultation and then whenever he thought was a good time or the the client thought it was you know a good time there was a good dialogue of course about this the client would go into this experience of expanded states with MDMA or with mushrooms. Sometimes it happened in groups, sometimes it happened individually. And then there would be all this follow up, all this process of integration, which for me has been really the most important aspect of that method, is the way attention was brought into the support of those states that had been opened during the experiences and really to create a process of empowerment, and Pablo was really good at that. Because he wanted the person to fulfill their potential, he was especially good at empowerment process, and he wanted to make sure that those experiences were well-grounded, well-rooted into one's life. So the method was ritual preparation, and then this process of the the expansion of consciousness itself during those rituals and, and journeys and then
0: the process of integration. So I'm very curious about the integration process because I learned and did preparation process and then the many different types of consciousness expanding processes. But I never really got much direction in terms of integration afterwards. I was very fortunate to live in a community where we were all doing this kind of work together, but we didn't really know what we were doing. Yeah. So I'm really curious, talk more about this integration process.
1: Well, you said something interesting to You You said that in your experience, you were sharing or this work took place in a spirit of community, in community, which is a big aspect of what integration looks like. It's one aspect but it's a big aspect because when other people remind you of your experience or you continue sharing about it or supporting one another or offering counsel when you are disoriented afterwards or, you know, just the presence of other people who have gone through the experience with you, a big part of the integration happens there. And traditionally speaking, those experiences have often been practiced in groups, or at least within a context where the culture supported them, even if some experiences are done in solitary isolation. You know, we know of the Kogi people of Colombia, right, the the big brothers or the little brothers of Colombia. In order to go through the rite of passage, the young man has to go into a cave and be there by himself, being fed by the people, but alone. And so that process is a solitary process, but the entire community is supporting him. And when he comes out, he will be with other people talking about it. So I think that in an indigenous setting, the process of this ritual happens within a culture that supports it. Either the process is done individually or in a group. So in my observations over the years of this process and how to best support it, how to best integrate it, I realized that, yes, community is a big factor, but there are so many aspects of this integration that can take place by oneself with one's personal decision and will and taking charge of one's process that I decided to, or I created over the years, this model of the holistic model, which is part of this book, which describe different aspects of the human experience. And through this lens of the holistic model, we can look at the preparation phase. We can look at the content of the experience and what aspects of the person it really touches or expands or affects. And then we can look at the holistic model as a lens through which to consider the a process of integration. So I consider integration, it has few steps. It has the... Returning from the experience, the narrating of the experience, as I say in the book, the return, I call it. So the return is, you know, the narrating, the tracking, what took place. And then the guide and journeyer can then decide or create together what would be the best way to support, complete, uh, restore peace or appease the system, the body, the psyche after such process, and depending on the read of the experience, the integration is then decided upon. So integration is a whole process of extracting, not in a bad way, but but, uh, pulling out, teasing out the main thread of an experience and making sure that those threads take hold, right? take root, so to speak, into someone's life so it can take the shape of continuing a process of being more embodied, if someone goes into an experience feeling very vital, very like, a sense of movement, a sense of dynamic energy and vitality, well, then the person would be advised to go and hike, or go and dance, or go do yoga, or get a you know massage, so they can be more touch and more body awareness. Or a person maybe dealing with very deep emotional grief from a past event, or Some anger about something that has happened to them, or some peace around uh, some issue. So then, this is continued to be supported in some practices that echo and resonate with the flavor of the journey itself. So, that process of grief may be completely resolved in the journey, and then there is peace after, or maybe it needs to be expressed to someone, or maybe a ritual can be done. So, the process of integration is continuing, of finalizing, of supporting what took place in the journey. So it's very practical. Those moments of creating integration processes, you know, these are not very complicated practices really, but they need to be echoing the flavor and the content of the experience itself. And that's where the art of the collaboration between the journeyer and the guide takes place really.
0: In the book, you talk a lot about it's wonderful to have these powerful experiences, but what it really boils down to is how we integrate them into our daily lives.
1: Exactly, we all have very beautiful moments or very special moments in life, and are like bubbles, you know, they float around, and we have, we see them, and we remember them fondly or dramatically, depending. And those journeys, especially journeys with entheogens, are really providing us a. Powerful opening and healing, and most people who are seeking those experiences are really looking for some transformation in life, some opening, some some shift, some getting unstuck, as people say sometimes. A few people simply come to this for the curiosity of it, you know, curiosity of. What is it like to take an entheogen in a safe manner or in a place where it can happen? And How can I possibly gain something? But there's always some personal calling. And so I always ask, why are you here? What is calling you to this experience of doing a ritual or doing a meditation retreat or doing an experience with entheogen? What calls you? What, what in your life calls that experience? And then that uh, teasing out of the intention really can provide a a bigger framework you know i believe to that everybody attracted to a ritual of any kind has an intention it's just a matter of naming it of connecting with it the psyche always pulls towards something not just by curiosity there's something deeper and part of the position of a guide is to support the exploration of that deeper intention
0: I remember when I was doing entheogens, whether it was LSD or psilocybin mushrooms, that the experience itself really deeply opened me up to those inner layers of, of knowing who I was and, and helping me to clarify what my further journey would be, that initially going into it, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Although, mm-hmm. although, unlike most other people, I never hallucinated on mm-hmm. these substances. Mm-hmm. They just completely opened up my inner landscape and mm-hmm. clarified everything for me, mm-hmm. which was a very, very powerful experience, and it, it mm-hmm. went very well with all the meditation training that I was doing at the same time. Yes, yes, yes. So I thought it would be interesting to hear you define consciousness medicine, and also perhaps begin by defining how you understand and define consciousness mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. So,
1: I define consciousness as in different layers, in different concentric circle. I should say. The first layer of consciousness is personal awareness personal sensory exploration and experience of human life i have consciousness when i see a flower this is a flower this is a moment of awareness this i touch something this is this is consciousness consciousness of my of my touch i feel an emotion that's another layer of consciousness consciousness is like a filter in which we experience human life. So if I if I touch a blanket or if I feel an emotion or if I'm in connection with someone else, there's a moment of consciousness, awareness maybe. Huh? Or deeper layer of of my process. That is the layer of consciousness. And then there is consciousness as a spiritual space what we can call transcendence or energy or beingness or what is in between and through exists through everything so it's almost like a divine presence it's a force Deepak Chopra calls it consciousness is what is at every moment of every human experience and even what exists beyond the human experience so we can call consciousness something that we can relate to or feel inside but it's also existing despite us so It's my definition or multi-layered definition of consciousness. And then when I look at consciousness medicine, I feel like these different layers apply to the way we can, I want to say that politely, but harness consciousness as an experience of healing and growth. Like I'm aware of my feeling, I'm aware of my sensory experience, I'm aware or I become more aware of what exists around me and beyond me, and what holds me, what is the source of it all, what is this, this flow, what is this creation, that creates a medicine, that heals me. All those different layers of perception and merging with the bigger flow of energy, that creates a healing. So it's a medicine. It's a medicine because it creates healing. And then... The consciousness medicine play on the word, so to speak, is that we also using medicine, meaning entheogenes, or various practices. Medicine is you know, it's a word, but it's used in the entheogenic family to describe the product that we are consuming, right? So medicine is also bringing us to consciousness. It also allows us to connect with those bigger Concepts of what is, what exists around us, and what creates consciousness, or how do we touch consciousness, or how are we human being able to perceive what consciousness is on these different layers of awareness, presence, and then the bigger picture of consciousness.
0: So you're talking about what we may experience as a as a kind of paradox of sensing our own personal experience. Of consciousness. And then these psychedelic substances or plant medicines can actually help us expand beyond our own individual sense of consciousness to directly experience what's beyond us and beyond what we can conceive of. That's right. So, so there's a, an inner and outer, not just a balancing, but like a, a breaking down of, of the barriers that, that create that sense of separation.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that's a big piece of what entheogens are really leading us to understand is the non-separation, is that when we are in a space that's done would call transpersonal, meaning it's not a personal space anymore, it transcends the personal, it's beyond the personal, it's beyond the ego and the identity of each other. When we transcend that, where do we go? What is that space that is not my individual self, what is that space that is not my history and my identity and my past and my culture, what is the, who am I, what do I belong to if I'm not incarnate, and if I'm not in this body, having this life and this family and this, you know, this reality here in the concrete world. And this aspect and access of consciousness is really what entheogens really help us connect with, and in turn, that dimension really informs our everyday life, our incarnation, our choice to incarnate. So this is a, a two-way street, so to speak, yeah.
0: And when you talk about incarnating, in a sense, we're continually incarnating in each moment, aren't we? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Every moment is a new experience. every moment is a new feeling. every moment is a mystery and a discovery. And that's what this work really helps us connect with, the, the magical and incredible beauty and, you know, massive yeah. moment of creation that each moment really is, and that we are able to be present with. I mean, where my eyes land at every moment is a possibility of wonder and awe and resonance with what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I'm feeling is a moment of my heart opening and and my emotion being here and my gratitude for what I'm able to experience in this human form. Yes, every moment is a real magnificent creation.
0: So there's a question that I'm curious to ask your thoughts about. You've experienced... Natural plant entheogens, and you've also experienced synthetic entheogens. From my experience, they all have tremendous power and tremendous spiritual power. Are there any meaningful distinctions for you in the use of them and the power that they have the the spiritual presence that they have? Yes, you know,
1: when I studied my work, with Pablo, of course, there were all this combination of various materials that were being explored at that time, and I was able to have the opportunity to work with, like I said, some MDMA and LSD, and you know, and we know how potent they are, and we know now with the research how potent such material can be for human healing, so we are for sure validating and supporting whatever is in, in unfolding now as far as uh, access to some of those materials in my long-term relationship with the mushrooms, which has been my, uh, you know, over 20 years of, of immersing myself in a culture that is centered around that uh, material, that fungi, what has been important for me to feel is that, and to then meditate on or have sort of the explorations within those journeys with the mushroom and understanding what is particular to those materials that are, organic versus the ones that are synthetic and i feel like even though everything is created even though mdma lsd or the materials are created by human beings they are created by the power of the mind and the imagination and, and innovation which is really an organic process in and of itself i feel like the material itself when it comes from the earth carries the message of the planet and is rooted in the wisdom of this great organism that we call Earth that informs us of a specific aspect of what vitality, what life, and what connectedness is really about. And I feel that that is a message powerfully carried with organic material. It is true, I remember it is true, and we know that, that MDMA creates a great sense of connectedness with other human beings. It creates a healing in terms of vitality and heart and love, and people have reported a wonderful release of trauma and returning to a place of ease. So I am for sure acknowledging the, the validity of the healing of those medicines, but everything that grows from the earth carries something of the earth. And I think as a society, it's really important for us to remember that and learn from that and absorb those layers of teaching.
0: I also find it fascinating how psilocybin mushrooms emerged into the realm of Western awareness roughly around the same time that Albert Hoffman discovered LSD. And this all happened after World War II and the dropping of the atomic bomb. To me, it seems as though a living intelligence was responding to a need. I remember Albert Einstein talking about the danger of the atomic bomb, that our technology is evolving much faster than our ability to handle it responsibly. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, it seems like these consciousness-expanding substances emerged in response to the dangers that we're creating for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I find it very interesting that both a synthetic form emerged as well as the mushrooms.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I have had this, I don't know, vision or I don't know what to call it. You know, download. I don't know exactly. Transmission. I'm not quite sure what to call it without sounding a little new-agey, but I have had this teaching, I should say, that came to me that the mycelial intelligence of this organism of the mushroom is really not just a physical mycelium intelligence, but rather an energetic and quantic mycelial intelligence that perceives what needs to take place and what information needs to circulate and what needs to be made visible and where and when. and that's the principal and active, energetic ingredients of what mushrooms are about. And I mean, it's just, it isn't canny to imagine that for 500 years, or five, many, many, many years, but I mean, since the Spaniards came, you know, in Mexico, that the mushroom would have been kept quiet until the time was right to come out. At the time, there was a need for it. You know, I think we are all messengers and carriers of the mycelial intelligence on the planet, I feel.
0: Wait a minute. You just said that you think that we're all carriers and messengers of mycelial intelligence? Yes. Talk more about that, please.
1: Well, you know, mycelium intelligence is the oldest organism on this planet. This is where the creations come from. Everything was first a bacteria. Everything was first a fungi. The intelligence of this organism is the source of everything that is created on this planet. And it has an intelligence that we don't really understand, even though we look at it and study it and observe it. It has an intelligence that rules, and not rules in an authoritarian way, but that monitors what is going on on this planet, I believe. So we are walking on mycelial bodies everywhere we walk in nature we are constantly surrounded by molds of many kinds we are constantly in a space where the fungi in whatever forms they have are present in our body in our surrounding and we are carriers we are absorbing an intelligence that we don't even understand or perceive that is managing the entire planet The entire communication between everything is taking place through my cellular intelligence and the natural world, as Paul Stamets very eloquently describes. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful to feel that there is a force that is guiding me and guiding the way I move in the world or what inspires me or what is the path that is laid before me. And I really trust that it is the expression of a mycelial intelligence to which
0: I am a servant of. It's fascinating how adaptable fungi are to the environment, and it strikes me that, much in line with what you're saying, that this mycelial consciousness is something that's far greater than than our own personal sense of consciousness, despite our cultural arrogance. Yes. Yes.
1: And if we look and lean onto that consciousness of the mycelial and fungi intelligence, we can really learn and feel safer because of its wisdom in modulating and monitoring and filtering and composting and making things right. It's not a destructor and it's not rampant and it's just doing the right thing at the right time at the right place. And if we lean on that intelligence for what's going on around i mean now it's very disturbed on the planet of course the planet is not maybe making enough you know it's hard for the mycelium to do its job in the current situation of how the land is treated but the intelligence of the mycelium like i said it's organic and it's quantic it transcends even the organic aspect of
0: itself Mm -hmm. at this point Humanity needs some serious guidance.
1: I agree. I agree. And, you know, in observing what is taking place, at least here in California, but also in other places in the world, the relaxing mentality around psychedelics or sacred substances or even method of opening consciousness has been unfolding. You know, meditation was not even thought of a few decades ago, and now it's included in the mainstream. Healthcare, acupuncture or relaxation techniques or expressive arts or all kinds of dance forms and rituals have been a lot more integrated into the Western industrialized world. Of course, those are maybe very alive in indigenous and First Nation cultures, but we have been more exposed to those modalities. And psychedelics right now is going through a renaissance, as uh, some people call it, the interest is reawakened, and some people have worked diligently for that, certainly. And there is also a, the mentalities are changing, and I think there's more interest and more curiosity towards various psychedelic substances that are, have great potential for society and for healing.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Françoise Bourzat, She's a consciousness guide who weaves together Western and indigenous ways of healing and growth. And she's the author of this wonderful book we've been talking about, Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. You were introduced to a Mazatec woman in Mexico named... Julieta Casimiro, and you've been studying and apprenticing with her for 20 years? Yes. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about how you met Julieta and your experience of immersing yourself in that culture and the way they see the mushrooms and how the mushrooms fit into their lives?
1: hmm I was introduced to Julieta by a man I met during a vacation in Mexico. Uh, I was in the Yucatan Peninsula and was in a little hotel I was held by this wonderful man who had known a little bit about my interest in this method and my work with Pablo previously. And he had a great connection with Julieta and the town where she lived, and he Thought it would be a good idea for her and I to meet. He felt there was a destiny that her and I should be meeting. He had this intuition. And so he took me to Julieta and announced my visit to her. She knew him very well. He had lived there for 10 years. She had sort of adopted him over being a godmother of his for many years. And I was very pleased that he would be. Willing to bring me to her, since I didn't know how to enter this tradition or this culture, or I didn't want to be someone looking for a shaman or something. That was not exactly my my angle. So this introduction was really wonderful, and he introduced me to her. She was eager to meet me. She knew that I had experiences, and strangely enough, Salvador was a good friend of her. So she had known Salvador many times during his visits in Wautla, in that town. And I sat with him and Maria Sabina, and it was a it was a wonderful gathering of practitioners. So it was very, uh, you know, very sweet that Salvador had been my teacher somewhat and my teacher's teacher. So there was a nice closing of that circle which I didn't know that he knew her. So when I arrived in Wautla, which is the name of that town, I was shy and I wanted to be very discreet. There was clearly no mushroom tourism in the town, which I was very, very grateful for. And the place was uh, the Mazatec people are very quiet. They're very discreet. They're very private. They're not very loud and wild. It's a mountain town. People are working hard and they plow the fields of corn. And you know, they, they live very uh, very modest lives. Very you know quiet lives. And they have a practice with these mushrooms that is ancient, that is thousands of years old, thousands of years old. And uh, these mushrooms have always been part of their culture, their, the way they see life, the way they consider spirituality, the way they have interfaced Catholicism with the mushroom tradition, very interesting piece of that culture, of course. And Julieta decided to... Take me under her wing. At the time when I went to visit her and started to return to her village, none of her daughters had really been ready to continue her work. So she had somehow decided to teach me. I just kind of appeared miraculously and there, and she just—we loved each other very much. We were kind of similar and. Somehow she was very close to my mother's birthday. They were very similar, very familiar. So it was wonderful. And she uh, started to really teach me and talk to me and take me around the town and kind of uh, take me on. There was no formal lectures, of course, but she sort of adopted me and I brought my family there. My husband and children, we all went there and I invited her and her husband to come to my place for a vacation for a week. And... So we, we started to weave all this relationship, and through the years, I was able to really absorb or learn the ways she worked and the ways she considered this plant, this plant, this fungi, the way the culture relates to this practice. It was very interesting for me to realize that the, the spiritual construct of the Church, the, the Catholic religion, was, in fact, very much woven with this, Practice of the mushroom. The priests there consume mushrooms. They are participating in ceremonies, either with a guide like Julieta or by themselves. They are very curious and very open to the mystery of the mushroom and how pertinent it is with the message of the church it's on a spiritual level, not on a religious level. So, the message of the earth being like Mary, being the mother of all. And then God being God, being the great divine, the great source, the great other side, as they call it, the other side, what's behind the veil, what's on the other side, which is the realm of the dead, that they uh, refer so much. And then the mushroom being Jesus, being the messenger of this great, great consciousness, this great other side with us human beings, and how when we do a ceremony, we are really communing, we are really taking in the gift of the Mother for our illumination and for our healing and for our understanding of our place on this planet as human incarnate. We are spirit-made matter. We are translated spirit into the flesh, and so the mushroom gives us a teaching on how to be human beings, how to be messengers of the divine ourselves. And that overlap is fascinating for me. And the great teaching of the Mazatecs really.
0: I'm amazed by that, that Catholic priests actually participate in that, were, were open to that. And were these the local Catholic yes. priests, or, or were, they, were they imported in from outside? Either, either one. And they were all open. That, that's, that's mind-blowing. Yeah.
1: They realized that to understand the congregation, they have to understand them. They have to understand this culture. And they are curious, and they are surrounded by this mushroom consciousness that calls them to explore and experiment. And and once they are there in the mushroom space, they understand. I mean, they understand that mushrooms does no religion, and that the message of Christ is a messenger of consciousness and peace, and really solidarity and love. And then they can talk about it to the congregation in a way that is, embodied with that experience that they had previously with the mushroom. And the people listen, and they believe him, because mm-hmm. now he's one of them. Mm-hmm. So that, that message is radical. There yeah. is a young man who made a movie called The Little Saints, very interesting movie, The Little Saints, because in Mexico the mushrooms are called Nino Santos, yeah. the holy children, the little saints. And in that movie, there is an interview. I don't remember if it's in the movie or as a clip that goes with the website announcing the movie. There is a priest named Jose Luis, whom I knew very well. He retired since then. And Jose Luis is interviewed by the movie maker in The Pertinence of Mushrooms in Wautla and within the Catholic Church. It's a very beautiful interview of this priest. Talking about the pertinence of the mushrooms in that uh, configuration of the Catholic Church. It's very beautiful.
0: I love the way it was so fluid the understanding of, of the embodiment of the spirit, whether it's the mushrooms or Jesus or the Virgin of Guadalupe.
1: That's right. You know, there's a story there's a story about the Virgin of Guadalupe that when she appeared in what is now the you know the outskirt of Mexico City. At the time when she appeared, most of the priests and what we call shaman, they were really priests, right? They were the elders or the leaders of the Aztecs, were massacred because they were holding traditions, you know, of the practice of the mushroom at the time that was considered heretic, that was considered the works of the devil by the Spaniards. So the Virgin of Guadalupe appeared at a place that is Tepeyac, which is where all the Aztecs used to do their rituals to the earth goddess, who was called Coatlicue. And when she appeared, all the indigenous people saw themselves in her. And when they saw themselves in her, cause she was a dark-skinned virgin woman with a cloth, just like the women were at the time and the same, you know, robbing, they realized that they were protected, and missionaries and the Catholic Church stopped killing the priests, because all the indigenous people converted, and Guadalupe, by her presence, stopped the eradication of the mushroom work.
0: That's such a fascinating, fascinating story.
1: And on her dress is the symbol of the mushroom. So it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating story. Yes. The entire presence of the mushroom in Mexico is really, I mean, there are other substances like peyote, and there's a great tradition of the witches of course. But here we're talking about the mushrooms for this moment and the presence of Guadalupe and her role into sustaining and salvaging the presence of the mushroom tradition.
0: Very interesting. You've also experienced ayahuasca, and I'm curious why you have chosen to focus on using the mushrooms.
1: Well, the mushroom called me. Uh-huh. The mushroom called me, and the mushroom was the source of my beginning of exploration with consciousness. And, you know, I felt very, very resonant with the mushroom. My co author, Christina, is quite experienced in the tradition of ayahuasca during her many travels through South America and going on retreats and various dietas there, and she might be able to really shed some light into that practice and that beautiful tradition. But the mushroom have been there from the beginning for me, and I feel that I've been called to carry, you know, their message or their presence or their intelligence. And my work has been really to try to create this translation, like Julieta and this other man who I worked with there decided to call me the interpreter or the translator, and that I was supposed to bring some words of their tradition into our modern industrialized world. So this is what I've been uh, focusing on, you know, trying to be a good steward and a good representative and a good translator of what I modestly and humbly understand, which is quite complex to try to understand an indigenous tradition is a big undertaking, which I'm very, very humble about. But yeah, this is the past that called me, and I have been called by other uh, rituals. You know, in the book, I speak with a great deal of tenderness and respect to the Lakota tradition of my friend and teacher, Marilyn Youngbird, who is a wonderful woman and an elder She's now 80 years old, and I'm planning to go visit her in South Dakota, or North Dakota very soon. And she also brings very wonderful, precious teachings from the Red Road, as they call it. So what I want to say is that, you know, there's the mushroom tradition, which I'm obviously more expert in than other paths with other entheogens, which I respect greatly, but it's just, this is not really my skill. My skill is very much in the mushroom. And I so much appreciate these other indigenous ways that are really based on not taking indigenous and looking at nature and looking at rituals and looking at the elementals in a way that can be so inspiring and so full of prayers and full of healing for us.
0: I would love for you to talk about the ways that these different ceremonies work and how they affect our consciousness. And I don't want to get into hierarchies of what works better than, than other things because I'm sure it depends on the person and the circumstance. But I would love for you to talk about how these different ways of healing work. Mm-hmm.
1: Like you said, Tanya, it depends on the person and it depends on the technique, on the tool of expanding consciousness that is being used so this is a very interesting topic because as i say in the book you know everybody's different like you said so some people may be more ready to enter those expanded states in soft manners like contemplating nature or having a a process of writing or expressive art some people are very, very active in life and a better way might be a meditative practice. Some people who are more confined in the workplace that is more enclosed might be better working in nature as a way of expanding consciousness. So you're right, it depends on the person. I think that if people are really solid psychologically, they've done some personal exploration through counseling, they have a certain emotional intelligence about themselves or a path of, reflective moments and maybe a practice of writing in a journal and really being, like I said, introspective, they can then access great extension and healing and deeper exploration through the practice of entheogens, of course, with a guided environment, which is the optimal setup. The way this works is that the best way to say it is that when we come out of our regular thinking process, our habitual way of relating to nature of ourselves to other people, when we go out of our, what's habitual for us, our comfort zone, we are right then entering a space that is a possibility of exploring unknown territories. So, that's why I was prefacing by saying if someone is very solitary, maybe they'll do work in groups If someone is all the time in social setting, they would do better work in isolation. So getting out of comfort zone, getting out of environments that are familiar and habitual creates right there a context for which the psyche will be exploring new zones, new areas. The techniques are accessing different depths and i want to say that also i've been myself in processes i mean of course I'm, i have a pretty familiar access to my deeper self but i've been in groups where people are in front of their painting and they paint for four or five hours and i've seen great great moments happening there i've seen people with the color with their paints with themselves on the paper that were highly, highly transformational with a good teacher who was supporting their unraveling and their process. And that was highly, highly transformative. Totally an expression of their unconscious self right there in front of them. And a liberation and an empowerment process that is quite similar to what can happen in mushroom ceremony. And I've seen people doing, you know, dance like a five rhythm or ecstatic dance or moments where in in a group people let their power of the group carry them into a place of movement that they wouldn't know was available to them. And the power of community and shared experience can take them into a deep transformative and releasing and liberating moment of understanding their emotion and liberating the body and feeling in sync with a group of people. That can be totally an altered state of consciousness that can totally create a a field of expanded state the process of entheogen is similar in a sense that when we ingest a product like mushroom or ayahuasca or mdma or this this various substances here we'll talk about mushrooms when we ingest mushrooms we are changing our chemistry and we are in a process that we are not going to be able to reverse for a few hours, whereas the other processes are accessing our consciousness where the ego structure is still intact. And at any moment where we feel overwhelmed, we can stop, we can walk out, we can sit down, we can talk to someone, we can regroup, we can shift gear. Whereas in a ceremony with a mushroom, we are on the journey for the duration of the effect. Of the material itself in its chemical aspect. So, part of the challenge with entheogen is that this is a commitment for the duration of the journey that we cannot really reverse. Now, when the mushroom takes effect, what's happening is that the construct of our ego really relaxes. The relationship with our mind changes, the relationship with our emotion expands. The relationship with our physical self and sensory perception gets changed, altered, and our visionary field transforms to a sense of fantastic visions or dreamlike experiences that are visual, where things are inhabitual or fantastic or mythical or mystical, and the boundaries of our personal ego self melt in some way to whichever extent of course but they are softened they are less rigid less constructed and our habitual pattern of of contraction and critical self gets released so we have access to a deeper sense of who we really are now what we really are sometimes is a layer of memory that has been buried in the recess of our psyches it can be a greater connection with the planet, which we haven't felt before. It can be confronting our absence of integrity and our addictive patterns and our way we mistreat other people. So, my teacher used to call it the light of truth, meaning we are really confronting what is inhabiting our psyches, our bodies, and our relationships. So, this is a process of looking at the truth of what's taking place inside.
0: That's actually what goes on with all of these approaches if we are willing to be deeply honest and present.
1: Absolutely. And that's really why I wanted to emphasize in my book that these experiences are not necessarily and exclusively reserved for entheogens and psychedelics and substances. If I go and sit in the woods by myself for an entire day, I'm going to be accessing spaces in myself that are going to be very complex, very rich, very confronting, and very liberating. I may cry. I may be bored. I may be in the place of wonder. I may be reminiscing. I may be accessing a great sense of passion and vision for my life. I may be connecting with the love I have for my children or my friends. All this becomes available if we have an intention, if we are preparing for the ritual, and if we are present to the many layers of the experience that are opening during those experiences. Absolutely. This is why the expanded states of consciousness, in and of themselves, whatever the technique is used, are fundamentally healing, fundamentally a great sense of growth and awareness and fulfilling our potential, like Pablo used to say. I remember doing a ritual before Journey one day. He asked me to go, and and I think I described it in the book, in fact. He told me, go out in the yard. He had a little house in East Bay, California, in Oakland. And he said, go get a stick and bring it back. I brought it back, that little stick. And he said me by breaking this stick you enter an exploration that will never end you make yourself a commitment to grow to heal and to fulfill your potential and i remember breaking that stick and feeling the power of that ritual and to this day the stick is in my little pouch on my shelf because it means so much to me and that little ritual was sufficient i mean I didn't even I mean, of course, I had a journey after, and everything was really prepared for me for a deeper exploration. But that moment stands for me as an enormous ritual that marks the power of a gesture when it's done with intention, with a context, with a guide, with the right preparation, with the right intention and presence.
0: That creates a sense of meaning for us. And That's right. if you're just joining us. My guest is Françoise Bourzat. She's a consciousness guide who weaves together Western and indigenous ways of healing and growth. And she's the author of this wonderful book we've been talking about, Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Goddard College Community Radio. It reminds me that these methods of achieving well particularly the radical methods the the entheogenic methods of achieving expanded states of consciousness that's really just a tool to alter our perspective to expand our perspective to to shift our old ways of seeing and perhaps break up old patterns or or open us up to to seeing things in fresh, new ways, that it's, it's not... Because we have a tendency to glorify experiences mm-hmm. in this culture.
1: Yes. Well, the, the culture is sort of geared into consuming. Yes. Con- consuming experiences and glorifying experiences, whereas, in fact, the experience is
0: us. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the experience is, is a marriage between a human being and an intention that is manifested into a a ritual. So we ought to own, not in a possessive way, but we ought to own the power of intention and the power of our intention. We ought to know the power of meaning and intention in what we do. And that is less about the experience itself, but what we make of it, and how present we are for its gift teachings. Right now there's a great deal of curiosity towards experiences, especially with enthusians. That is a little bit alarming. People, you know, want to try it for the sake of curiosity. Like I said earlier, I think fundamentally there is a deeper intention and this is part of the, the work is to tease out why they want to do what they want to do. But yeah, things are focused on the experience itself rather than the person
0: having the experience yeah it's like a form of spiritual materialism right instead right. of actually immersing ourselves in the direct experience mhm mhm mm-hmm. and your teacher julieta said something really beautiful about the mushrooms she said it's nature that does the healing that she who births the sacred mushrooms, as medicine for the humans, is the true healer.
1: Yes, yes. She was a uh, very—she passed away last summer, so she's no longer with us in this plane. But she was a woman of great modesty and a great power, which makes a great teacher. Mm -hmm. She was uh, very humble, very much of the land. She was a farmer. She grew her food. She walked the path in the mountains, she knew the herbs that healed many things, and for her, the mushroom were one of the plants that heal the heart and the spirit and reminds of who we are, but it was a message of the earth, really. She said to me, it doesn't matter what's in the plate, meaning you can do ayahuasca, you can do mushrooms, you can do peyote, you can do different things. She was aware of the different traditions that are offered on this planet with sacred plants and fungi, she's aware of it. And she said, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what's in the plate. It's all about the earth anyway.
0: And nature is such a great model for the experience of being fully present. That's right. Under any and all circumstances, which is essentially the lesson that we're, that I think we all have to come to terms with in our lives, that we all have traumas and challenges in our lives that we have to work through and to, to learn the, the art of, of just being fully present with whatever is in our lives. Right.
1: Yes, I believe that nature is a, is a great teacher in the ways of, of beauty, of mightiness, of destruction, right? I mean, the, the earth goddess is, is one of the goddesses of, of the Great Feminine and with Kali and Durga and other uh, goddesses that are uh, very mighty. You know, <clears throat> the uh, the original Guadalupe, as I said earlier, is called Coatlicue. Uh, and the thing is, the Spaniards didn't know how to say Coatlicue, so they called it Guadalupe. Um, that's another story about this. But Coatlicue is a woman, it's a big sculpture of the earth goddess that carries... Snakes and skulls of her children that she eats because Earth gives birth to all of that exists that is alive and also absorbs everything that is dead. So she's the great creator and the great destroyer. And we have day and we have night and we have winter and we have summer and we have decay and we have new growth. And all that nature is is really us. It's really not just a reflection of us, but it's really a mirror in which we can see ourselves as you know, made to her image like anything. Like, we see a flower, it's earth. We see a tree, it's earth. We see a rock, a mountain, it's earth, an animal. And we see a human being, and it's earth in the same way. And I really got that very deeply, and I'm kind of wired that way. I think that's what we got along to. It was a very strong conviction for me that this earth... This earth being is we are not separated. We don't have a relationship with the earth. We are the earth. Yes. It's really a non dual relationship. And that's a really important aspect of what these states of consciousness are about. Because when we are in the space of the mushroom and we experience non duality, we experience one with being, one with essence, we are essentially in nature we are essentially in a non-dual state which nature is
0: with us. That reminds me of something that an old teacher said many, many years ago. He said that human beings are like flowers on this earth, that we take in cosmic radiation and we root it down into the earth. That's right. That's right.
1: That's right. That's right. Everything, every creation is a divine creation, a creation with the of the great mother earth and the great you know whatever space and sky i mean uh it's it's uh yeah we are we are uh little little children of this earth, yeah right
0: so this whole model of healing is really about wholeness,
1: mm-hmm. it's very much about wholeness, and that's exactly why it was important for me to describe this what i consider a model of wholeness in the holistic model right because you know it's so many different facets wholeness is is one and it's made of many parts and how to categorize parts of human beingness like an impossible puzzle right it's an eternal puzzle with millions and millions of pieces but how can we what what is wholeness i mean what is wholeness what makes wholeness it's a very it's a very huge topic, really. That is a mystery almost. That is, uh, how could I say? It's like, it's like the Holy Grail, you know? We walk towards wholeness all our life. You know, there's always something that we're doing that's possibly a little bit out of of our full organic self, right? We are not treating ourselves well. We're stressing out. But the wholeness model is something we, we are and we seek both. So the theory that... We are perfect. everything is perfect every moment. You know we do our best, we are perfect. And we know that we are constantly walking this fine line between being a spiritual being and being a human being, right? And so we are constantly facing decision making and mind constructs and cultural oppressions and and our past and our belief system of our memory bank. So we are constantly trying to liberate ourselves, right to free ourselves from this construct, to experience this, the best of the, of the natural world the way we see it around us, which is wonderful inspiration.
0: And transcend any sense of, or fixation upon the ways that we may be broken or not fully functional.
1: Right. Right. Well, that's the thing. As we face ourselves inside, during these journeys of deep introspection or uh, whatever, whatever skill we use, we are confronted with our greatness, our great light, and our shadow. And the point of this journey is to have compassion for the places in us that are struggling. And that is perfection. The point of this journey is, is not to get perfect. The point of this journey is, is to accept and have compassion for our struggle while working towards more balance in our life. So it's both a process of acceptance and a process of attentiveness to what we need to create a more balanced and whole life. It's a paradox, but this is what I'm trying to express.
0: And that reminds me of a couple of things. In this process, particularly with mushrooms or entheogens, it opens up these shadow areas of self that we normally keep hidden or buried And the work seems to be to find a way to embrace it all in a kind of wholeness. And I remember when I would do mushrooms, the beginning part of the journey was very challenging. I would have this image, kind of visceral feeling and imagery of hitting a wall and then having to go down Underground, and that was the first part of the journey, and it was very uncomfortable, and it reminded me of the notion, the mythological journey into the underworld. Yes. And that's like the first step of bringing together the unconscious and our consciousness. That's right. That's right. That's tricky work, and I can understand why it would be so valuable to have a good guide assist us in that process
1: that's right because when we go into those spaces in the mushroom experiences the places of shadows can be very disorienting scary and destabilizing. somewhat of course we're in the journey so we are just like we don't like what's going on we we're afraid we don't understand and you know it's, it's a particular space that's very scary and if there is a good guide the guide can hold someone's hands or put the hand on their forehead or on their upper chest or you know have a physical contact that is of course very appropriate but that is gentle to remind them that they're not alone to even talk to them for a moment and say you're okay you're doing the right work i'm right here with you you can do this i'm by your side you know it's just reassure the explorer right dear presence for courage, right? courage. It's the hero's journey here, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about going into the descent and of the psyche of the, the caves where there's darkness and there is memories of difficult emotions. And this is part of the light of truth, as for yet I would say, and the light of understanding, the light of truth. We shine lights with these mushrooms into corners of ourselves that we didn't know were there, right? And some of them are. Frightening when they go into shadow material, and some of them are beautiful. So, I've seen some people shining light in places in ourselves that was full of tenderness and full of beauty and full of sweetness, and they didn't know they had them. They were big, butcher guys, and then they found themselves in the sweet, tender spot. And that was their shadow, that was their unseen places, and it was beautiful too. So, the light of truth shines in places that are unseen, and they may be dark and
0: difficult, and then it be dark and
1: beautiful. hmm
0: Yeah. That also reminds me of a long time ago when I was doing these entheogens, particularly LSD. At the end of the trip, when I realized that I was about to come down, I would ask for something that I could bring back that I would be able to remember. And every time I received the same message, it was a very gentle, loving voice telling me, to just relax. hmm
1: hmm Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And that, I think, was because I was young and I was feeling kind of desperate to heal, and so it was hard for me to let go of that desire to change and to heal and to grow and to be patient. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a a process of awareness. It's a process of accessing more of ourselves, right? Pablo used to call this accessing your unlimited potential. It's a fascinating word. Like the potential is is, is unlimited. You know, we we think, okay, I'm good here. I love myself. You know, I'm better at this or I accept this in myself. And yet the process is unlimited, which doesn't mean we're never good enough. It just means we can keep deepening and we can keep uncovering and we can keep growing and expanding and exploring and expressing ourselves in the way that we live this life. And that's really an amazing human adventure.
0: That's the sense that I've carried through since my childhood. I've always had the sense that there was literally infinite possibility.
1: I think as children, we are a lot more innocent and a lot more curious and a lot more in awe of the potential, although some of us are more wounded and there might be some places that are not allowing this kind of wonder and curiosity, of course. When a child is wounded or traumatized, there's not a lot of place for this sort of dreaming of of life, even though, of course, this can happen to anyone, but when we have more of the space and availability.
0: One thing that I found really interesting about your holistic model for a balanced life was that you added the elements of community and environment to the notion of body, mind, and spirit. Mm-hmm. And those are things that we rarely consider in our culture. That's
1: right. I felt that the notion of body, mind, spirit was pretty well acquired and assimilated into the mainstream, thinking of health and psychological health and physical health. And I felt like these two aspects of community and environment were not very valued, very showcased, very featured. Part of it is, you know, our world here, and I want to say in Northern America specifically, that might be different if we were living in a different culture where the notion of family and community and, you know, a tribe might be a little more developed than Northern America, but the the notion of community is something we need to include in the process of healing, in the process of returning to feeling a sense of tribe, feeling a sense of being supported, being witnessed, being encouraged, being consoled, that we are not alone in the process of being human beings, and that there is a great deal of growth and healing in the way we are reflected by the people around us, our families, and and communities in general, in, in a larger sense rather than the nuclear family. Oftentimes, the nuclear family becomes also the source of our pain or our constriction or a belief system that we adopt that is born out of a family dynamic. And it's not always healthy. It can be great, and it can also create a a limitation to how we are resonating with other people. So the presence of a larger community through spiritual endeavors or neighborhood or sports or activities of any kind, hobbies, can really present us with the opportunity to be seen and to see others and to have different, different reflections, different resonance with other people. That's really important for the concept of healing and the concept of wholeness. And the aspect of the environment is a very important, like we said earlier, the way we are with where we live or the way we are with nature, with the, the natural world is so healing, it's so soothing, and it's so very mirroring who we are. And I was reading recently a, an article that I, A client of mine sent me and said, oh, I read this and I thought of you, and it was about gardening. It was about being in nature in a way that interfaces with nature, that we plant a plant, we we take care of the plant, we cut the roses, we put them in our house, we collect the petals, we grow some tomatoes, and we tend to the plant, and we harvest the tomatoes, and we feed ourselves. It's the very thing we grew, that interfacing with nature and the nourishment that nature is It's a huge piece for me of my stability and my my resonance. I even say that nature really regulates our system, regulates our nervous system, our physical system, our endocrine system, our emotional system, can very much inspire our spiritual vocabulary or experience, for sure, direct experience. So... The presence of nature and the way we interface with nature, the way we interface with our environment where we live, is such an important piece of health and of well-being and of wholeness. So it was important for me to add those aspects. Just like before, you know, when you were talking about how usual it was in the space of this ceremony work or ritual work to talk about second setting, the intention and the preparation and and the way the ceremony happens, and that I was paying a lot of attention to the integration to the, this other aspect. And it's the same here. The body, mind, spirit has been pretty much assimilated into the way we look at ritual and especially, you know, um, physical and emotional health. And the process of integrating environment and community is a really big piece of creating wholeness, I believe.
0: And then there's the elements of wisdom, creativity, and love into the process or infusing those qualities. And you share a wonderful quote in the book from Nisargadatta who says, When I see that I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I see that I am everything, that is love. Between these two, my life moves. Okay. And that's such a creative way of understanding and experiencing that kind of apparent paradox. Right, right.
1: Absolutely. You know, it was such a powerful process for me to dive deeper into this distinctions or these qualities of this model, because the model itself, the five-aspect model, is very valid and is very fruitful and useful and, and a good uh, roadmap. For but it's nothing unless there are qualities into it. It's mechanical. It's, it can be very much an inventory of this and that and the other. But then we have all these qualities and the wisdom to, to look, to see, the awareness, the clarity, right? The, the clarity, the, the seeing the truth, right? And then there's the creativity with it. What do we do with what we know? Huh? What do we do with what we know? So Feldenkrais had this wonderful quote that I almost put. I don't know if it's in the book. I forgot. But it says, You cannot change what you're doing until you know what you're doing. So, you know, you have to know what you do. You have to have clarity. And then you have the creativity of changing, of modifying, of adding, of expanding, of exploring different territories that are less developed. And that process of creativity is very, very beautiful, but it has to be also in the space of love because we have to have affection. We have to have tenderness to what, what we're doing and the way we see ourselves. Otherwise, everything is becoming a a job, a work, devoid of affection and of heart. So I think these qualities are very essential to not only the sense of sweet attention we put to ourselves, but to the efficacy of the model. Because the model is not going to work unless we have this creativity, unless we have this clarity, and unless we have this feminist, this love. Otherwise, it's going to be dry, and it's going to be feeling like a, a military drill, and it's not going to be very fun to observe our life and not have all these qualities that infuse this observation.
0: And it seems to me that the qualities of wisdom and creativity are what lead us to the full experience of love, you know, beyond these... Romantic notions or personalized notions of love.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Because the moment we look at our lives, of course, some of us, you know, can look at our lives with a very high critical mind. You know, it's the chicken and the egg here. It leads to love, but it has to have love. It's totally interconnected. If we look at the situation of our lives, if we look at wisdom, if we look at the nature of something, Without the tenderness in it, it leads to love, but it also has to have love right from the get-go. It's an interesting circular process. You know, it's an interesting uh, challenge to be able to describe these three qualities in a circular way, and not in a sequential way. There's this, and then there's that, and then there's that. They kind of lead to one another. That's true. And I also feel like, you know, love has to infuse absolutely everything, right?
0: So, and. Creativity seems to be like a dynamic force in the equation.
1: Absolutely. Creativity is really born out of our human potential, right? We're back to that word. So the, what we think of, what we come up as an idea, what we are expressing is really connecting us with the potential and with this love and with this amazing richness of life. And so it's a very dynamic process. I really feel like... The moment we initiate an action out of an idea is, you know, the battle is as <laughs> one. You know, it's like this moment of life affirming itself through this creative process, Yeah.
0: And there's a line in the book, something about expressing the invisible dimensions in tangible ways. And I would love for you to talk about the importance of doing that and how we can go about doing that.
1: You know, I believe that ultimately everything we do is an expression of the divine. Everything we do is an expression of spirit in the incarnate form. When we put some form, when we put some intention, and when we put a mindfulness, and when we put a sense of respect towards the beauty of life, we can transform this expression into something more, sacred, more ritual, more honoring, that in turn honors something within ourselves. The way we honor the ritual is the way we honor ourselves. So this expression of sacredness is really, again, a resonance with what is inhabiting us. So I believe that the expression of spirit into rituals, into ceremonies, into art, into movement, into life expression, human expression, is really a personal honoring of this divine within us, of this great force within us.
0: And that's a wonderful place to end. My guest has been Françoise Bourzat. She's a consciousness guide weaving together Western and indigenous ways of healing and growth and expanding consciousness. She teaches at the California Institute of Integral Studies and she's the author of this wonderful new book that we've been talking about, Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. Françoise, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you.
1: It has been a wonderful opportunity, Tanya. Thank you very much.
0: That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. For more information, check out wgdr.org.